Well, it never ceases to amaze me that I get to uh, preach the Word of God to you guys uh, each weekend. It's uh, my great joy. I love it. And um, so thank you, God, for that honor. Well, I did a wedding yesterday, and uh, it reminded me that there have been a couple of occasions over the years that I've had the wonderful privilege of conducting the wedding ceremonies for couples who at one time were married to each other, and then were separated, and then were divorced, but then by the grace of God, they were reconciled to each other, and then they came and asked me to perform their remarriage ceremony. And uh, that's pretty cool stuff, really. I remember after both of those uh, driving away thinking, what a beautiful thing reconciliation is, a work of God in people's lives. And that's really our theme of what we're talking about this morning, reconciliation. We're familiar with that theme, aren't we? We know what that means when two brothers, for example, get all mad and upset at each other and have a falling out and refuse to talk to each other for years and years, and then one day finally come to their senses and realize how foolish it is to continue to harbor animosity and hatred towards each other, and they come back together as brothers and restore their relationship. That is reconciliation, isn't it? And it's a a joyous occasion always. To reconcile is to bring back together two parties who were estranged from each other. It involves removing the hostility, removing the hostility that existed between them and restoring peace. It means turning enemies into friends. I think uh, when we think of reconciliation, we probably think of it most often with reference to friends who had a falling out or family members who started feuding with one another or spouses who couldn't work out their differences, or business partners who got crosswise with each other over something. To be reconciled means to set aside all those hostilities and come back together again and be friends, to once again be at peace with each other. In my own circle of relationships and in our church family here, there are certain reconciliations that I'm praying for. That's probably the best thing that I can do in those kind of situations when I hear about them. In fact, you may be someone that I'm praying for. You may be someone who's at odds with somebody else, and I'm asking God to work in your life and in their life to restore that relationship and bring you back together. And I want to ask that if if by the grace and power of God that happens, that you would let me know about that so I can share in your joy of being reconciled. In fact, that story about the two brothers that I mentioned earlier was a real story. Two guys in this church, and they let me in on what God did in their relationship, and so I got to rejoice with them that God had brought them back together. It's a beautiful thing. Reconciliation is that. It's a beautiful and glorious thing. It's also a biblical concept and a very vital one. And while people reconciling with people on a horizontal level is very, very important and a theme in Scripture... An even more prominent theme in the Bible is the reconciliation that God desires to experience with his creation, with us. And that's the subject of our passage in Colossians that we're looking at today. So if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, it's great to see our students back from uh, snow camp last weekend or mud camp. And uh, was it kind of rough or what? I mean, they beat up on you? (laughs) Hope not. But uh, it's great to have you guys back. We, we uh, know you had a good time. So we're looking at the work of Jesus Christ turning 
enemies into friends. Let me read, beginning with Colossians 1, verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, who's the him? Jesus, right? In fact, that's an answer. If you usually just give that answer, it's usually the right answer, okay? And it certainly is here. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now let's recall what we've been learning about this letter and and, and in this section, basically that Paul is going off on a gospel riff, a gospel rant. He's launched into a hymn of praise for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In so doing, he's seeking to push back against some people who were coming into that church plant in Colossae, infiltrating it. It's interesting that church plants seem to attract people with an agenda, and that was happening there. And they were called the Gnostics, and we introduced you to the Gnostics last weekend. And among them, there were teachers who were seeking to influence the people there and paint a smaller picture of Jesus. They were seeking to diminish Jesus in the eyes of the people, selling a a less impressive Jesus, a lower than the angels Jesus. Their Jesus was a weak Jesus who just couldn't quite get the salvation job done and needed our help. They said it was fine to believe in Jesus, that's okay, but that Jesus wasn't really enough. You needed more. And so Paul here in this letter reminds the Colossians of the real Jesus, the Jesus who towers over the universe, the Jesus who is God himself, nothing less. And we noted it was a hymn of praise. So Paul's heart really is singing of Jesus and his bigness and his sufficiency. And then where we find ourselves today in this passage, he moves from rejoicing in Jesus' identity to rehearsing Jesus' activity and especially Jesus' most celebrated work of salvation. Now, salvation is a great word, isn't it? Why don't you say it with me? Salvation. And I don't know if you thought about this, but salvation through Christ is like a beautiful diamond with many facets. And I want to give you six salvation words that each describe a wonderful facet of what Jesus accomplished for his people on the cross and through the empty tomb. I think they're written out there for you on your study guide. And the first is the word regeneration. Would you say that? Regeneration. In regeneration, the sinner stands before God dead, spiritually dead, but is infused with the very life of God. If you are saved today, if you are truly a Christian, you've been regenerated. You've been made alive in Christ. He's given you his life. Second word is justification. Would you say that? Justification. And in justification, the sinner stands before God as the accused, as the guilty one, but is declared righteous. That is justification. And then the one maybe we're most familiar with, forgiveness. Say that word with me. Forgiveness. 
Another salvation concept. And in forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor, but then the debt is completely paid off and forgotten totally. That is forgiveness. And then there's the concept of adoption. And in adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger, but is made a son or a daughter, adopted into the family of God. And then redemption, would you say that word with me? Redemption, we say we are redeemed, we're the community of the redeemed. In redemption, this happens, the sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted freedom by the payment of a ransom price, a price of blood. And then our concept for today, reconciliation. Say that word with me. Reconciliation. And as we saw in reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but is declared to be a friend. A friend of God. Someone ought to write a song about that. Sometimes we get the notion in our head that salvation is only about forgiveness of our sins, but it is so, so much more than that. It is truly diamond-like. Our motto for this series is Jesus first. Jesus first. Jesus not just present in our lives, not just prominent in our lives, but Jesus preeminent over all of our lives. That's what we're talking about. Jesus, our most precious treasure, our strongest passion, our highest aim, our deepest love. And there's something very important we need to understand about this this morning. It's our preeminence principle for today. And it, it goes like this. Putting Jesus first begins with being reconciled to him through faith. That's where it starts. Putting Jesus first in your life begins with you being reconciled to God through faith. Paul's going to explain this to us. and We're going to see in this passage four aspects of Christ's work of reconciliation. The plan, the mediator, the purpose, and the evidence. You ready for that? Let's look at the plan. God's plan for reconciliation. Let me read those opening verses again, Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Would you circle that phrase? Reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his Flesh by his death. So circle that second reference to reconciliation. You he has now reconciled. So there is a plan. And it is God's plan. Paul's telling us that history is headed somewhere. That God is busy orchestrating history in accordance with his plan. And what is his plan? Well here, Paul is focusing on the reconciling dimension of God's plan. It says God aims to reconcile to himself all things and as part of that to reconcile to himself people who were his enemies. So we see that Paul is stating that God's plan of reconciliation has this huge cosmic dimension to it, all things, and then it also includes personal reconciliation of you and I with our creator God. And so Paul is really here preaching a bigger gospel, isn't he? It includes salvation for individual people, but it's more than that. It's a bigger gospel. Now, someone came up to me after one of the celebrations last weekend, kind of doing this. Pastor Steve, my brain hurts. 
All these new things that we're learning about Jesus are hard to wrap my brain around. And yes, that's true. But really, we should expect that, shouldn't we? As we finite beings are trying to comprehend an infinite God, we should expect that our brains would hurt some. And this concept here that we're going to be looking at today, reconciliation, might fall into that same category of truth that will cramp your brain a little bit. But we'll ask God to to help us understand. You say, what does it mean that God says he's going to reconcile all things to himself? Well, this speaks of the fact that all of creation is currently under a curse. We know this, right? Because of mankind's sin. We live in a sin-cursed world. And part of what Jesus secured by his death on the cross is the guaranteed restoration of all of creation to what it was originally tended to be. Did you know that the Bible says that creation literally is groaning under the weight of the curse? Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. Just listen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now, if your brain hurts a little bit after that, that's okay. It's a lot to comprehend. Let me simplify it a little bit for us by saying this. Things are not as they should be. That's what he's saying. Things are not as they should be should be not as they were originally designed to be you remember reading god created all that is and then he stepped back and said what it's good it's good but now in our world there is evil there is sin there's pride and arrogance there's murder and war there's lust and adultery there's coveting and theft and greed and idolatry and self-righteousness All of humanity is infected with these things. And nature has been affected too. Many Bible scholars believe that natural disasters like earthquakes and volcanoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and floods and famine are the result of living in a sin-cursed world. Not to mention plagues and disease and the like. That's why it says creation is groaning and people are groaning too. There's a longing for something better. And the plan is for something better. That's the plan. New bodies. A new heaven and a new earth. One day, the Bible tells us, God will remake both the heavens and the earth and will clean everything up. And at least one guy's excited about that. You say the heavens need cleaned up? Why is that? Well, John MacArthur states that the heavens, the heavenly realms, have been contaminated by the presence of demons 
and Satan, who in this age have been allowed to roam through the heavens. And so they need cleaning up. And we know the earth could stand some improvement, if not total renovation. That's the plan. God will reconcile all things to himself. He will make friends with the universe again. And it will be like it was before the fall. Read Revelation 21 and 22 for more on that. That's where, he's, where God says, Behold, I make all things new. That's the plan. To reconcile to himself all things. But now there's a sticky point here. If you think about it, to be honest, we've got to ask this question. All things, right? Is Paul here teaching that all people will ultimately be saved? Is Paul here teaching what's known as universalism, that one day hell will be emptied out and all non-believers will ultimately be reconciled to God? Was Rob Bell right to contend that in the end God's love will win everything to himself? And what about Satan and demons? Are they going to be saved? Are they going to be reconciled to God too? That's a fair question and you could see how this verse could easily be interpreted to mean just that. God reconciling all things to himself. Well, I studied this a lot, and the scholars that I trust and that I rely on insist that Paul is not here teaching universalism, that he's not. And they point to two things. First, they say this, if he was teaching that here, then he would be contradicting what he's written in many other places in his writings, and we'd have to conclude that Paul is schizophrenic. (laughs) Second, the context Surrounding this verse lets us know what he means by all things. Namely, that God will reconcile to himself all things that are reconcilable. All things that he has planned to reconcile to himself. Do we find in scripture that God plans to reconcile Satan and demons to himself? Not if you believe Revelation 20.10, which says they will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. Do we find in Scripture that God plans to ultimately reconcile all unbelievers to himself? Well, not if you believe 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9 and Revelation 20, 15 and many other places. So you can do some more study on this for yourself. But for me, I'm convinced that Paul is not teaching universalism here. He's teaching, rather, that God will most certainly reconcile to himself all the things that he intends to be reconciled with. (laughs) And yeah, that makes my brain hurt, too. Paul is telling us that Jesus' death on the cross purchased huge, sweeping guarantees for creation. But it also purchased individual salvation, didn't it? That's why it's good news for us. I mean, what kind of good news would it be to hear that that Christ died to restore all of creation, but that there's no hope for you? That wouldn't be good news. And so the plan is for both the cosmic restoration of all things and for personal reconciliation of individual people. And Paul hones in on that in verse 21 and 22. These happen to be our memory verses for this week. So read them aloud with me, if you would. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Did I leave the last part of that off on that slide? Sorry about that. It's probably not good to truncate the word of God, is it? 
Well, look, this is where he gets personal with this notion of reconciliation to God. He brings that big notion of cosmic reconciliation down to you and to me. In so doing, he describes humanity, doesn't he? And he uses three terms. You who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So here we have the teaching on the doctrine of human sinfulness, human depravity. And I ask, according to the Bible, are human beings by nature basically good or evil? Which is it? We're born into this world DOA, dead on arrival. We do not have to teach people how to be bad. You know this with your kids. You don't sit down with your kids and say, say, son, daughter, I'm now going to teach you disobedience 101 because you don't know how to do that. No, they know how to do that. It's in us. Make no mistake, the Bible as a whole teaches that humanity is by nature sinful, rebellious, wicked, alienated from God, hostile towards God, loving sin and self more than God, and loving darkness and avoiding the light at all costs. But some of you might hear that and you say, well, wait a second now. Wait just a second. Maybe that was true of those people, the Colossians, but it wasn't true of me. Maybe you think, well, you know, back before I was a believer, I don't remember hating God. I wasn't hostile towards him. I was just kind of indifferent. I I didn't think about him that much. I didn't care that much what he thought. But I wasn't hostile. I didn't consider him my enemy. Well, let me give you two things to chew on, okay, if that's your thought. First, indifference towards God is hostility towards God. Just ignoring God is immeasurably wicked. Think about it like this. What if you went home tonight and the governor of our state was sitting at your kitchen table, the governor now of the state of Ohio in your kitchen, sitting at your kitchen table, and you just kind of went about your business and ignored him? Oh, you know, there's some Fruit Loops in the cupboard if you get hungry. And you just kind of went about your life and you totally ignored the governor of the state of Ohio sitting in your house who is accustomed to being recognized and treated in a certain way, rightfully so, because of his position. If you just ignored him or were indifferent to him, wouldn't that be interpreted as hostility and you would not get that opportunity to host him again, most likely? Now take that little offense and multiply it by a billion and you begin to get the magnitude of the offense of being indifferent towards God, our Creator. Not only that, think, of, think about this. It's not just that sinners are hostile towards God. It's also that God is in a state of, or disposition of wrath towards sinners. You say, now wait a second. I thought God loved people. Yes, he does. Did you know that God has within himself the capacity to be both wrathful and loving simultaneously? Just like you do. Think about your kids for a minute. God has that capacity. He loves people, but he absolutely hates sin and rebellion. He hates pride and arrogance. He has to because he's holy. In this very same letter... Paul is going to say this in Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Just read Ephesians chapter 2 sometimes. It starts out like this. 
and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's that? That's Satan. Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's humanity. All of us apart from Jesus Christ. Dead. No life of God in us. Sinful following the world, following the prince of this world, dominated by fleshly passions, doing whatever our bodies told us to do, doing whatever our minds told us to do, under God's holy wrath, enemies of God, desperately needing to be reconciled to God. Not a pretty picture, but true, nonetheless. Thankfully, God's plan included provision for humans to be reconciled to their creator. Amen? I mean, that's a good thing. Now think for a minute about the process of two estranged parties being reconciled. Oftentimes there's a need for a third party to enter the picture. We call a what? A mediator. That's right. In the process of humans being reconciled to our creator, we needed a mediator. And Paul leaves no doubt as to the identity of the mediator of our reconciliation with God. That's the second thing we're going to look at. Two phrases that he uses clue us in. He says, making peace, that's a reconciliation term, isn't it? Making peace by the blood of his cross. Then he says, he has now reconciled in his body of death by his flesh. So whoever this mediator was, he accomplished the mediation and restored peace through a bloody death on a cross. I think I know who that is. In another place, Paul identifies the mediator very clearly, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the mediator of reconciliation between a holy God and sinful people. As the Bible says, Christ has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Humanity needed a mediator, someone who could both understand our plight as humans and be able to satisfy God's holy wrath against our sins. He had to be unique. He had to be someone without any sin of his own. He had to be God and also man. He had to be a God-man. And there's only ever been one of those. Jesus Christ, the God-man, our mediator. Okay, so the plan calls for God to reconcile all things to himself, including people. Reconciliation of that kind and that magnitude required a mediator. The mediator is Jesus, who accomplished this through his shed blood and death. He accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for enemies of God to become his friends. So what's the purpose of reconciliation? What's the aim of all this? What did God have in mind for people who would be reconciled to him? That's the third thing, the purpose. And he's very clear, verse 22. He did all this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Before him. Isn't that awesome? The purpose of you and I being reconciled to God, becoming his friends, being saved 
born again, reconciled to God, at peace with God. The purpose is this, that one day we all together will be presented to Jesus as holy and blameless and above reproach. Now that sounds a lot like what is said in Ephesians chapter 5 about Jesus' bride, the church. Let me read it for you. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Amen, guys? He loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Hmm. That's interesting. That is ultimately why God reconciled you to himself so that you could be a part of the spotless bride who will one day thrill the heart of Jesus Christ with her absolute purity and the beauty of her holiness and be united with him and dwell with him forever. Every marriage here on the earth was intended to picture that. Christ's love for his church, his bride. And if you're not accustomed to thinking about the church in that way, if that makes your brain hurt, welcome to the club. We're all there. Many of us have never thought about this very much. The Bible opens with a marriage. It closes with a marriage, a wedding ceremony. One of the golden threads woven throughout the entire Bible is this notion that God is preparing a bride for his son an eternally lovely companion for the king, and she must be completely pure and holy. And sinful people are not, and thus the need for reconciliation through a mediator and the lifelong process of being purified and cleansed and made holy for him. That's why we've been saved, for him. And did you notice that the mediator and the groom are the same person? That makes my brain hurt. (laughs) It's all about Jesus. I've been telling you for the last several years, it's all about Jesus Christ. And I'm more convinced of that now than ever. It's all about him. You exist for him. We exist for him. The church exists for him. It's all about Jesus Christ. All right? So here's a pertinent question for us to consider, for you to consider. How do you know that you have been reconciled to God? How can you know that? What's the evidence of that? Are there, is there proof? Are there some identifying marks that a person has been reconciled to God? The evidence of reconciliation. Listen again to the final verses here. I'll start with 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now there's a big word there, the first word of verse 23. What is it? If. Circle that word. If. Now we need to ask, the question here, is Paul here teaching that you can lose your salvation if you stop believing? If, he says, 
Is Paul teaching here that even if you were truly reconciled to God at one point in time, that you can become unreconciled to God through your unbelief? And many people think that he is teaching that here. But you need to know I don't. I admit it could be read that way. But personally, I subscribe to the doctrine of the preservation of all true believers, what's sometimes known as the perseverance of the saints. In other words, I believe that the the scriptures support the notion that all true believers will keep believing in Christ to the end of their lives. That God will keep them believing. Yeah, there will be some fades and falters and some lapses, but God will do it. If they're true believers, God will keep them believing to the end of their lives. And that those professing believers who fall away from the faith permanently simply give evidence that they were never truly reconciled to God. That's what I believe. Sure, they may have attended church. Maybe they even prayed a prayer of salvation. They may have gotten baptized. They may have even exhibited some signs of wanting to follow Christ. But if at some point they totally abandon the faith and turn away from Jesus and say, to heck with Christianity, then I believe that what you have is what is referred to in the Bible as an apostate that they were never truly saved in the first place. There's an example of this in the scriptures, right? In the time of Jesus, a man named Judas. I'm telling you, Judas looked like a Christian. He walked like a Christian. He talked like a Christian. He hung out with Jesus. He knew the lingo. He spoke Christianese. But he was a phony. And it got revealed. And he turned away. I'm in a Twitter conversation these days with an avowed atheist who, as best I can tell, this is his story. He was once a Christian, he said, but he got hurt by the church. He got hurt by a pastor. And he since has totally denied the faith. And he told me that he thinks I've been duped and I'm crazy for believing the way that I do. I'm okay with that. I'm trying to get him to open up more about those hurtful things that happened. But if his rejection of Christ is indeed permanent, I don't believe that he lost his salvation. I believe that he came close, but he was never truly saved and reconciled to God. What is Paul saying here? I believe he's saying that the evidence of having truly been reconciled to God is the possession of a strong faith in Christ that is anchored firmly in Christ's work on the cross, and that keeps clinging to Jesus even when it gets hard, even during the dark seasons of your life, even when answers to prayer aren't coming, even when hardship and even persecution hit. He says, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. When I think about that, I think of the word anchored. That's the picture in my mind, isn't it? Anchored. Anchored firmly to Christ's reconciling work on the cross, no matter what waves threaten to bowl you over and sweep you away, no matter what mistreatment you may experience in this life, no matter if your father molested you, no matter if a priest or pastor abused you, even if your kids turn on you, even if cancer invades your body, those are all horrific, horrible things. But not one of them can change the bedrock truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners 
And through his death on an old rugged cross, he paid for all of your sins, and you are eternally protected. That can't change. As the living Lord, he promises to guard and protect his reconciled people from eternal harm and destruction, no matter what happens to you in this life. In recent days, I keep coming back to the words of this hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Through every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's true, isn't it? Listen, things happen in this life. Disappointments will come in this life. God has never promised to shield you and I from those things. Dreams can be dashed in this life. But as my small group co-leader said to us this past Tuesday night, you know, some people have developed an eternal perspective on those kinds of things. They cling to Jesus despite the disappointments, knowing that in the end, all things will be made right, all injustices and mistreatment will be dealt with, and God will prevail in the end. That's what faith does. It clings to that. That stable, steadfast, persevering faith is evidence that a person has been reconciled with God. So let me finish by asking this question. So how do you go about receiving that? How do you go about becoming reconciled to God as a person, as an individual? How does that come about? As my grandma used to say, it would be a crying shame if God the Creator went to all the effort that He went to in order to reconcile all things to Himself and you to himself through the suffering and death of his son on the cross, if God went to all that effort and you didn't get in on it, what a crying shame needlessly ending up being judged for your own sins when your sins have already been judged for in the body, the flesh of Jesus Christ. So how does an individual become reconciled to God? Well, Paul in verse 23 says that someone must proclaim the gospel message to you. Check. That just happened. You must hear it, I can't speak to that, and you must believe it. (laughs) Think about that for a minute. What if God had set it up a little differently? What if he said, well, if you want to be reconciled to me, here's what you got to do. You got to make a pilgrimage to Israel, and then you got to crawl over cut glass to the Temple Mount, and there pray for a thousand hours, and then I'll consider it. What if God had said that? But he didn't. In fact, what God says is, I did it all. I did all the work necessary to reconcile you to myself. That's why we talk about the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You can add nothing to it. You can't contribute anything to it. It's to die. It's finished. It's perfect. It's done. 
You don't have to make a pilgrimage to Israel and crawl over cut glass and pray for a thousand hours. Jesus did what was necessary for you to be reconciled to God. You have simply to hear it and believe it. That's what grace is all about. That's, what, that's why Christians sing about amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That's our God. That's our God. The hope of reconciliation with God and eternal protection can be yours today if you hear the gospel message proclaimed and believe it. Turn from your sin and cling to Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. So in just a moment, we're going to participate in the Lord's table once again. And maybe you say, well, didn't we just do that a couple of weeks ago? Well, yes. And we did it in our small group just this past Tuesday night. But you know, this passage so lends itself again to remembering the person and work of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? We can't be over-reminded of all that he's done for us. And so we're going to participate. And I know many of you are true believers. You, without a doubt, have been reconciled to God. And so you can come and take the wafer that represents his body and dip it into the cup and partake of that and maybe you wanted to stand here for a few moments find a place to stand and just just say thank you god thank you for paying the price for me but i imagine there are some of you who are not yet reconciled to god maybe you know it or maybe you don't but if you want to be this today could be your first true experience of the lord's table as a believer And so if that's you today, before coming and participating, and there are tables on the sides also that you can use, I'm going to ask you to go to one of our prayer partners. They're going to be back in that corner and over in this corner over here and just walk up to them and say, I want to be reconciled to God. And they will guide you into that and they will pray with you. And then they will walk with you over to the table where for the first time as a new believer in Jesus Christ, you can participate in the body and blood of Christ. Wouldn't that be cool? I imagine there's several of you this morning who need to do that. And so let me pray now and ask the Lord to meet us in a very special way. Our Father, I am astounded. My brain hurts at the scope and magnitude of your reconciling work. I can't totally get it. All things made friends with once again. I'm trying to understand that, but what I do get is that I have been reconciled to you through the work of Jesus on the cross. And Lord, I just, I, I remember it. I turned from my sins and I believed your gospel. I clung to you, Jesus. I've not really ever doubted it since that night. But I pray for the believers who are here this morning, who are reconciled to you. They know it. Their faith is firm. They're clinging to Jesus Christ. Lord, would you meet them in a special way here at your table? Would you manifest your presence in a sweet, special way to your people, Lord? And for those who are here this morning and have never been reconciled to you, are not saved, are not true believers, may they take this opportunity to go and talk with a prayer partner and be guided into expressing to you faith and repentance. May they believe and be saved and then come and partake of the elements as their first true communion 
thank you, Lord, for this memorial of Christ's death, which reminds us that it's not our performance that gets us reconciled with you. It's Jesus' performance for you on our behalf. And we thank you for that. Receive our devotion and worship now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.